I'm going to skip the first bit actually, go straight to section two. Because what, what I'm really interested in in this talk is there are two models of uh, how a power gets to exercise. And there is the, the sort of orthodox view that I think is a largely unchallenged the idea that, uh, well, I'm calling it the stimulus response model. The idea that a power, in order to exercise, it's in, stands in need of a stimulus. So if you consider the fragility of a, a glass, uh, the fragile glass doesn't just break for no reason, it breaks when a stimulus is administered. A stimulus occurs, the glass is dropped. Similarly, you can have the soluble sugar cube. It's not just going to dissolve spontaneously. So it seems there has to be some story about when and why and how powers get to manifest themselves. So the first model is the stimulus-response model. And I'm going to say that this is, this is an orthodox view, I would say. I think even some people who tell us that they are realists about powers think that we should understand powers in this way. So I'm thinking of Alexander Bird, for instance. Occasionally this, uh, there are sometimes criticisms against the reality of powers that begin from the assumption of a stimulus-response model. So I'm thinking of, uh, there's a paper Stephen Barker has, I think it was in analysis, where he's basically saying that we have to construct powers out of stimulus-response relations. One other aspect to this, I think, is that there is some connection between this kind of metaphysical picture of power standing in need of stimuli and a conditional analysis of dispositions. Now, I don't think the connection is, is sort of as tight as, as one of entailment, but I think they, they go together quite nicely because I think when people start thinking, say in the 1920s and 30s, Carnap, for instance, and there was a big debate that followed that, uh, where some of the first attempts were made at a conditional analysis of dispositions, then the, the thinking was that the antecedent of the conditional would be the stimulus conditions and the consequent would be the response conditions. So I don't know how well acquainted you are with this sort of historical debate on powers, but the basic idea was that, as Ryle articulates in the concept of mind, that when I'm ascribing a power, I'm not actually invoking or referring to some kind of real property or state of a thing, what I'm actually doing, kind of tacitly, I'm just sort of saying that there's a true conditional. So he sort of calls it an inference ticket. So I'm kind of licensing an inference. So if I say my dog tends to bark, all I'm, all I'm really saying is that if you go look for my dog, you'll probably find him barking. Or uh, if I say that something is fragile, I'm just licensing the inference that if you drop it, it will break. Now the significance of that, I think, is that if, the, if a conditional analysis were to work, and the hope for Ryle and others who followed him was that the, both the stimulus conditions in the antecedent and the response conditions in the consequent were occurrent on non-dispositional terms, 
then you had effectively reduced away the powers. There was no need to be a realist about them. You just needed the occurrent non-dispositional property of being dropped and the occurrent non-dispositional property of being broken. And that's all you needed to explain what was going on when someone ascribed a disposition. So a conditional analysis, I think, for, for anyone who wants to be a realist about dispositions like I do, for instance, I think that's something to be resisted. It doesn't matter because conditional analysis doesn't work anyway, so it's, it's, you can resist it. But I think some of the attraction of that kind of conditional analysis approach is the idea that what dispositions are about metaphysically is something that's between the stimulus and the response. Okay, here's four problems, and then, I, then I'm going to go on to the, the other way of understanding dispositions, which is in terms of mutual manifestation. Now, I saw from your webpage you're also you're reading Charlie Martin's book in your reading group, so you maybe have gone past the, the chapter on causation. So what I'm going to say is that basically the Charlie Mine way of understanding it is superior, the idea of mutual manifestation partnerships. However, Martin gets it wrong in approximately four very important ways. So I'm going to say we should go for mutual manifestation, but we've got to understand it the right way. So that's, that's what I'm going to be saying. But first, let, let me just try to motivate some reasons why you would not want to go for the stimulus response model. So first of all, it, it doesn't allow spontaneously manifested powers. And you may think that's not too big a deal, but you may think that spontaneously manifested powers are a special case, or you know, they're, they're not particularly prevalent. But there are supposedly things in physics like radioactive decay, the case that we always go on about, where certain types of particles seem to have a disposition to decay at a certain point specified by the half-life, which is a very difficult thing to specify. Um, so if I know the half-life of a certain kind of particle, it doesn't tell me when it will actually decay. It tells me when there was a 50-50 chance of it having decayed, or if I had a large quantity of such particles, uh, would half of them have decayed by that time? Nothing is needed to make them decay, they just decay. So this is why we think it's spontaneous. There doesn't seem to need to be any stimulus conditions. So that's a spontaneously manifested disposition from the sort of physical sphere. In the mental sphere, which is the reason I first got interested in dispositions, through reading Gilbert Riley and things like that, uh, well, we do sometimes describe people as spontaneous. Uh, I'm not, but some people are. And it means precisely that they're, they're just going to get up and do something new for no reason in particular. So that's what we mean when we say someone is spontaneous. So again, it doesn't need any stimulus condition. So maybe a spontaneous person is just sat reading a book and then suddenly he's going to jump up and go for a ride on a bicycle for no particular reason. Okay, so there it looks as if there is no stimulus condition. So it makes you wonder what would be left of a stimulus response model for disposition to 
But it, there are more problems, which you may think are more serious. So here's the second one. And this is one of the reasons in particular that I don't like the stimulus response model. It kind of suggests a, a very passive view of nature, which those of us who are realists about powers don't want. Because the idea is that the power really is just going to sit there and it's, it's never going to do anything unless it's appropriately stimulated. So as we may say up in Yorkshire, the powers, they need to kick up the backside to actually go do anything. And unless they receive it, they're not going to act. Um, now, that passivist view of nature, I think, is associated with certain other views in, in metaphysics, which are not the kind of views I would want to subscribe to. Um, maybe a kind of mechanistic view, maybe a sort of view some empiricists would like, um, maybe a sort of view that Hume would like, nothing sort of intrinsically powerful. Um, so Brian Ellis in his book on scientific essentialism does, does a lot of work on sort of outlining the pacifist view of nature. Okay, so I don't like the idea that the powers can act because that's what I think the powers are. Which leads us on to the third objection. Because here it seems to me there's something very peculiar going on. While we're told that the powers can't act unless they're stimulated, the stimuli themselves do seem to be active because they're able to come along and give a kick up the backside to the powers. So the stimuli can act, but the powers can't. And that seems to me got it the wrong way around, hasn't it? Because surely when we're talking of powers, we're thinking of they are powerful. They are, they are the things that do all the work. Now we're being told, well, no, they do nothing unless the stimuli come and make them do something. So if I'm interested in powers, then I'm now thinking, hang on, well, then it's the stimuli I'm more interested in. What I started out by calling the powers are now powerless. They're impotent, but the stimuli, they've got all the power. So I think that there's something peculiar about the stimulus response model in that the, the powerfulness, the potency has got shifted elsewhere. It's, it's moved from the, the original place we were looking but of course that's not the end of the matter. So it's peculiar in that respect. But also, is you're bound to start thinking, well, hang on then, if the stimuli are powerful, how are they powerful? How do they act? Now, I would assume that if you're going to stick with the stimulus response model, then you'd have to say, well, actually, the stimuli, they couldn't actually do anything on their own either. So they would have to receive a stimulus. So they can't kick the power up the backside until something's come along and kicks them up the backside. Now, you could say, well, clearly there's a possibility of a regress there because... 
Um, basically, you haven't, well, the account doesn't tell us how anything gets to act. So I'm only saying it acts if something else acts first and makes it act. So it's never explained how powers get to do things, so that's why it could turn into a, uh, an infinite regress. Which would be that in order to act, a power would need a stimulus, and in order for the stimulus to act, it would need a stimulus, and so on. So that, um, that I think is probably the most, well, two and three are probably the most serious worries for me. There's also a recent paper that Jonathan Law has on the conditional analysis, which he thinks is thinks explaining uh, why it doesn't work. So it was in the Mornis special issue on powers, I think, that came out in January. Um, and there he's saying, well, the, the problem with the um, conditional analysis is that the antecedent conditions are actually just naming a necessary condition for the, the power to be stimulated, which would rule out any kind of theory of causation based on an ontology of powers, which is one thing I, I want to get. Um, so a, a simple way of thinking of the objection is just to say, well, clearly there's an analytic connection between the antecedent and the power. Uh, and if you were to follow one piece of Humeanism, that you know, the, the uh, cause and effect would have to be distinct existences, then it would rule out uh, a theory of causation based on a theory of powers. Uh, so the the point is simply that just from knowing what the power is, I I know what the stimulus conditions would be for it because it's analytic. I can work it out. It doesn't mean it's always easy to work it out because you can make slips in reasoning, but it does seem to be an analytic question. Now it's a while since I've read that paper, so you better not ask me any further questions on it. So. But I'm going to say it's mainly two and three that I'm, I'm worried about, but also, in a way, point one, for reasons I'll, I'll give shortly. Okay, so I'm not keen on that. It's the orthodox view, even among some people who support powers. So what's the alternative? Well, if you've got as far as page 51 of Martin's book, uh, Mind, Mind, in, Mind in Nature, mm -hmm. uh, you, you will already know the quotation that I've got on the handout there. But That's perfect for us because, you know, we're just there. So you are. It's good. We're just done possession, so we're ready. Well, have you done causation? That's what I want to know. Because the, the peculiar thing about that chapter is that, although it's called causation, if he's right, it's not actually about causation. Uh, so I'll, I'll draw attention to that with the quotation. So, but, but basically the idea then is that um, one of the problems with the stimulus-response model, which is kind of in my objection two and a bit in objection three, is that the, the power is passive and the stimulus seems to be active. So that there's a kind of 
asymmetry there. They're, they're, the stimulus and the power are kind of unequal partners in the production of the response because the power is passive, rather counterintuitively, <clears throat> and the stimulus is active. Um, the power is not going to do anything unless it's forced to do so so it's impotent whereas the stimulus is not okay now Charlie Martin's mutual manifestation model allows it as a different take on it because the idea would be that uh, two or more maybe you could even have a kind of limit case of one a rather artificial case but the idea would be that uh, powers manifest themselves just when they come together in the right partnerships. And this would be an equal partnership. Uh, so we're not going to say that one's doing all the work, one's impotent, one's passive. We're not going to say anything like that. We're going to say that they're equal partners. Now there are a few cases that, that make that kind of picture appealing anyway. So. Um, if you look at some well-known problem cases of causation, say, say putting the ice in the drink, causing it to cool down, uh, and that example's been discussed because it looks as if it's the ice acting on the liquid, it's, you know, it's making it cool, but we also know that you could view exactly the same situation in another way as the liquid is melting the ice cube where it looks like it's the liquid being active um, so the active passive distinction seems a bit more about that would just be the way you look at it it wouldn't be anything that would have strong metaphysical significance it would seem more of a, an epistemological question or a pragmatic question um, Similarly, we we wouldn't want to say either the sperm or the egg is active or passive, although people have said things like that. Uh, as you're recording this, I won't venture who, because I don't miss anything libelous. <laughs> although Aristotle's not going to Wait, you're thinking that. Okay, I'm not going to mention I'm that going to tell you that he's the one who gives the radical alternative before 2008. Because, a little bit before little 2008. Before. <laughs> because he's the one who thinks first of the mutual manifestation partners. Oh. Mm. Okay. Well, maybe he gets it more right than Charlie Martin. Mm. We'll see. But then there is. Okay, so um, the idea would it, it could be um, a coming together of more or less equal partners. Um, where each makes a contribution and they're able to do something together that none of them could do alone. So if you consider the sugar cube in the tea, they're able to produce a sweet solution which um, individually they, they can't. They, they have to meet the right mutual manifestation partner. The... Um, We've known for a while that things can have a whole bunch of powers within them. And one way of looking at that is that things are able to do, produce different responses according to which mutual manifestation partnerships they enter into. 
Okay, so the the hot tea that's able to dissolve the sugar cube is also able to burn if you spill it on your flesh. So there it's meeting a different partner and able to do something else. So there, that would be an explanation of how um, how things can have multiple powers because it would be a question of falling into different mutual manifestation partnerships. And a, a little pet idea I have, and I'm not sure I've ever published this, um, I think it's a way of understanding technology. It's basically about discovering the hitherto hidden and unknown powers within things. So when this black gungy stuff first came out of the ground, you know, who, who would have guessed that it was eventually going to be used to power motor cars? or make plastic, you know, so technology was a process of finding these powers within this substance, which was also a question of finding the right mutual manifestation partners that would allow uh, allow it to do those things, which raises interesting questions, you know, because who knows what hidden powers there's still within things that we want to uh, discover. Okay, but back to what Charlie Martin says. This is the case of the two triangles in the uh, title. So Martin says, You should not think of disposition partners jointly causing the manifestation. Instead, the coming together of the disposition partners is the mutual manifestation. The partnering and the manifestation are identical. This partnering manifestation identity is seen most clearly with cases such as the following. You have two triangle-shaped slips of paper that, when placed together appropriately, form a square. It is not that the partnering of the triangles causes the manifestation of the square, but rather that the partnering is the manifestation. Now, he, he doesn't provide a, an illustration in the book, so I reconstructed it from the text. But something in mind like that, that if I were to push those two triangles together, I would get a square. Okay, so, for the reasons I've given for dissatisfaction with the stimulus-response model and subsequent things I said about some of the things I like about the mutual manifestation model, then I am going to ally myself with the mutual manifestation model. Um, and here's something... Now, I'm not going to say too much more about the spontaneously manifested powers, but there is there's one thing relevant to it. So once the partners are together, they act... You know, they do something. So they are not going to need a further stimulus. So it's not as if there's some further part of the explanation that we're waiting for. Um, so the infinite regress worries me less as well. Not waiting for some further element. Now, there could be some cases where you do need a further element, so there may be some chemical reactions where you need a catalyst to come and get them going. Because when I first heard about this, I thought, well, 
is it really sufficient just to bring the partners together to get them to, to act? You know, sometimes you need to agitate them a bit. Maybe you do need to stimulate them in a way, and that's what a catalyst would come and do. But I think if you're serious about mutual manifestation partnerships, what you ought to say is that once the partnership is complete, then the action occurs. And if you had a case where you felt something else did need to come and agitate, or a catalyst needed to come and agitate that partnership, then what that would actually show is that you had an incomplete partnership. Okay, so the mutual manifestation partnership could be two or three or many more powers you need to bring together to get them to uh, act. But once they are all together, then they act. So the catalyst would just be a further mutual manifestation partner that had been missing. As soon as they're together, they act. Okay, which then gives me less of a worry about spontaneity of powers. Okay, because there you've got a model where just by being together you get the action. Okay, so we don't have a kind of passive model which I think makes the idea of a spontaneously manifested power a bit more acceptable. So you've not bought into that pacifist framework. So you could think of the spontaneous power as a kind of limit case where it's a kind of complete actor already that's not standing in need of further partners. Uh, completely skipped over the question of why it takes time for, for such a power to act but maybe that could be an interesting discussion for later ok but so so far I've been saying things in support of um, Martin's mutual manifestation model but I think it needs revising the first, the first revision is it may be a relatively minor point. I haven't actually got it on the handout. Um, and Martin does say something which concedes to it. Okay, so it's basically just that the two triangles do only form a square, as he concedes, if they are appropriately arranged. Because I could put them in an arrangement where they just formed a bigger triangle. Uh, so it, it does require an appropriate arrangement of, of parts so that the mutual manifestation partners do have to be duly arranged. Now, I think this is no big objection. It just means we have to say something about what counts as a partnering. And like most else in Martin's book, it's pretty vague on that, that level of detail. So you may say, well, physical contact is, is required. Or maybe that's um, not required because... Uh, if you have two radiators at opposite sides of this room, they could act together to raise the temperature of the room and they may have a power to do something together that they couldn't do individually. Um, you know, so the two radiators are able to, to raise the temperature in the room, just assuming for the example, higher a higher temperature than if just one radiator was operating. So you've got two powerful objects there that are not actually in physical contact but they're able to do something together that they couldn't have done alone but there they're, they're at least in sort of rough vicinity of each other so we don't, we don't 
doesn't seem automatic that you have to actually bring the powers together or the objects that possess the powers together uh, just being in the same spatio-temporal region may be enough and with the case of the triangles we've seen that being together uh, wouldn't be a sufficient condition either because you would need to tell some story about the due arrangement so there's a lot of detail there but I don't see that that's an objection it's just sort of saying you would have to give an account of what what uh, was to qualify as a partnering okay but setting that aside then let's get on to some things that I think really are objections so uh, all these objections are basically saying so I'll let the cat out of the bag right from the start basically saying that Martin's uh, two triangles model is missing something and these sort of three objections all sort of show that something is missing and then when I get to the end I'm going to say that what is missing is precisely the thing he's denying causation that basically he's giving us a model that's more along the lines of maybe something like muriological composition just saying it's, it's a, a composition of parts and what we do need is causation where that can involve some kind of genuine transformation okay so I'll build up to that then and each example will get sort of progressively more serious so the first one is I think what we have to note is that when mutual manifestation partners come together in almost every case they take time to do their work whereas Martin's model if, if we're going to stick with the analogy of the two triangles well as soon as the two triangles come together and touch in their due arrangement then they form a square it's not as if there's some sort of process where they're, they're together and it takes time for them to become a square you know, as, as soon as they touch, as long as they're lined up right they become a square so it's suggesting that the work uh, that powers do is done instantaneously and uh, many cases of causation are clearly not like that there could be some that are uh, there are some alleged cases in physics where you get kind of instantaneous action uh, but they tend to be fairly controversial so I think in, in the, most of the cases that we know of and that we feel comfortable with and secure with it's going to take time what's going to happen is that the partners are going to come together and it's going to begin a process that process could begin as soon as the partners are together but it will take time to complete so I want to allow a kind of processy view that when partners come together it starts a process but that it will take time for that process to run its course it might not run its course because there could be an interference or interruption where we could stop the process uh, but what the powers are powers for is the process and once the powers are together and if there's no further interference then that, that process will run its course and it kind of exhausts itself 
So that's a pretty abstract view of the world. Let me give you a simple example. Oh, it's one, one of all. Well, it's a couple of examples. So first, um, kind of trying to reconcile the idea that cause and causation takes time with, with also a view of simultaneity. Okay, and I'll, I'll show you shortly how that can be done. But first, um, would want to uh, give Kant's example, which sort of illustrates this. Here, Kant says the great majority of efficient natural causes are simultaneous with their effects, and the sequence in time of the latter is due only to the fact that the cause cannot achieve its complete effect in one moment. But in the very moment in which the effect first comes to be, it is invariously simultaneous with the causality of its cause. So one of uh, Kant's examples was the stove heating the room. Okay, so as soon as you turn on the stove, in more modern, more modern example, uh, the radiator, you turn it on, begins acting straight away. It's raising the temperature of the room very slowly. So it's beginning a process, and if we allow it to run its course, it will manifest its power to raise the room to 22 degrees or whatever it is. But it takes time for it to do that. But whatever it's on, it's acting. So an example that we've got in the book is the dissolving of the sugar cube. Um, and in figure two, there, there's an illustration of how causation can take time, but nevertheless causes and effects be simultaneous. So we start with the sugar cube and the water. And as soon as they're together they start the, the dissolving begins but it is a process it's going to take some time so it's not until T2 that this process has run its course and when it's done so we've got a sweet solution we've got something that we didn't have at the start we've no longer got the solid sugar cube uh, we've no longer got the, um, the liquid without any sugar in solution we've got them, they've come together they've undergone a transformation nothing, nothing solid is left um, and there is sugar in uh, the liquid or water ok so um, that gives us this sort of model of temporally extended causal process which suggests that, um, first of all, that the analogy with the two triangles forming the square is sort of missing out, I think, something fairly significant there. So it's inadequate in that respect. But it's also missing out something else. You know, so he's just suggesting that the two triangles coming together, forming the square, in a way the two triangles are still there. They've not gone in, un, undergone any particular transformation by being together, whereas you can see that the sugar cube and the liquid have. They've undergone a change. So that's why I'm worried that Martin's model isn't really causation and isn't telling us anything about causation. It's telling us something just about meriological composition. Okay, so the second objection is that 
Martin's model would suffice only for linear cases of uh, where uh, linear composition of causes, whereas many cases of causation are actually non-linear. Now, people I know who are scientists, um, they tell me things like, "Well, actually, most cases of causation are non-linear." That's the sort of thing a scientist says. But I mean, I don't know how you count cases of causation, so I don't know how you could justify the claim that most cases are non-linear. So let me just say something in very simple terms then. The idea would be that um, for a linear case of, of composition of causes, you would have a kind of proportional output to the input. So that if you sort of drew uh, two axes and had a, you'd have a straight line. Okay, so to give you a very simple example. Um, money seems a, a cause of happiness within some social systems, uh, but it's not a linear cause of happiness. So your degree of happiness isn't proportional to the amount of money that you have. Okay. So, um, if you, so I'm, sh I'm sure that people and money, and you'd, maybe you'd have to add a certain socio-economic setup. Okay, um, money does cause happiness. So I'm going to take that as some kind of social or psychological fact. Okay, but definitely not in a linear way. So if it was linear. Uh, someone on a salary of £40,000 per year would be twice as happy as someone on a salary of £20,000 per year. It doesn't work that way. Uh, what we find is that um, a certain fairly, well, relatively low uh, amount of wealth can create quite a lot of happiness, say if it takes you from poverty level to reasonably okay, so you've got food you've got accommodation, you've got clothes can lead to quite a high degree of contentment and then as you earn more money you do get a bit happier and a bit happier but each extra £10,000 of income uh, produces a diminishing return until you get to the point which I would call the Michael Jackson syndrome where more money actually produces less happiness because you can't trust your friends anymore and you haven't got any private life because you've got people following you and journalists following you. So you wouldn't get a straight line if you plotted uh, wealth and happiness. You would actually get a curve which could, could at some point start going down. Okay, now there's probably lots of other examples from all sorts of sciences which I haven't really got the expertise to give you, but what we need, it seems, we have to allow at, some, at least some cases of non-linear composition of causes. So there I've used the term composition of causes, which is sort of an old idea from John Stuart Mill and System of Logic. The idea... Uh, well, because if you're someone like me who thinks the notion of power and cause are quite closely related, then for me, a coming together of powers is a kind of composition of causes. 
So I'd want to allow that they can pause in a non-linear way, or they could. So what would that mean for Martin's two triangles example? Well, what it would show you is that the analogy is inadequate again, uh, because uh, it would suffice only for uh, linear composition. Uh, because it's clearly the case that the area of the resultant square is just the sum of the areas of the two component triangles. If we were to allow nonlinear composition, and I think we have to, then you'd have to allow that the area of the resultant square could be greater or less than the area of the component parts. Now, that although I'm kind of just saying that Martin's analogy is wrong it does actually go to the heart of his theory of what he's offering you as a theory of causation because he's just saying that don't think of the components as causing an effect but they are the effect, they are the manifestation so that's telling you that just those component powers together, that partnering is identical with the manifestation, well if we want to allow nonlinear composition, then that's not good enough. It's not going to work. Because you would have to allow some kind of transformation of uh, quantity between the component parts and the overall resultant manifestation. Okay, so here we come to the third case. So I've sort of been putting these objections in the order of, of how much havoc they would create with Martin's account, saying that they're, they're going to require revisions. Um, what Martin's case would not allow would be the production of some kind of genuine novelty. In his account, the powers do just simply add up. You put them together and it's like you, you just get their mereological sum. And he's so saying the manifestation just is the mereological sum of the component powers. But that really just does not seem to work. So here's a particularly striking example. Sodium is soft, bright, silvery metal. It can float on water and when doing so decomposes with the production of hydrogen and the formation of hydroxide. Sodium may ignite spontaneously on water, depending on the amount of oxide and metal exposed to the water. It normally does not ignite in air at temperature below 115 degrees C. Chlorine is a greenish-yellowish gas that is a respiratory irritant. As little as 3.5 parts per million can be detected as an odour, and 1,000 parts per million is likely to be fatal after only a few deep breaths. Chlorine is so toxic it was used in gas warfare in 1915. From this information it's impossible to predict that sodium chloride should be the benign compound that makes the ocean salty and is an essential compound for life. Not to mention potato chips and margaritas. It's possible that a knowledgeable chemist could make this prediction, not today, but perhaps sometime in the future. But at this point, salt appears as an emergent property of sodium and chloride. 
now that comes from a paper that's sort of arguing for emergentism and that's not really my topic or my emphasis and uh, the issue of whether it's predictable or not uh, I'm not particularly interested in in this talk that's, that's for people who are interested in emergence but what it seems we can say is that you put two things together with these powers and the power of the whole clearly isn't just the sum of the powers of the parts because it would suggest that if it was salt would be poisonous it sounds like one of the most dangerous substances known to humanity salt is a bit dangerous in vast quantities but not for these reasons not because it could ignite spontaneously or that it's so noxious it, it could uh, you know, be a respiratory irritant so that seems to suggest again that we do need some notion of transformational novelty and that that's what's going on in causation um, that uh, now this particular example doesn't particularly lend itself to that to the case of causation that's, that's just showing that's showing something slightly different that uh, bringing together groups of powers doesn't just involve their sum because what we've got in the case of salt is that there is actually a, chem a chemical process well I mean, so maybe that would count as causation if, if it was a case of bringing them together there would be that kind of transformation that's going on um, alternatively you could say that the way sodium and chloride chlorine <coughs> constitute salt is in a kind of non-mereological composition but the basic point is that when we bring together powers to act then there could be some change okay so the the dissolving case shows that that the the sweet solution has a power a bunch of powers that the individual components didn't have and the individual components had powers that at the end of the process they don't have so the sugar cube maybe had a power to make a noise if you banged it on the table. Uh, there seems nothing left in the sweet solution that has that power anymore. So to go back to Martin's analogy, it would be like saying that you could bring together the two triangles and what, what the resultant would be might be a circle or you know, something... A transformation has occurred and you're left with something that looks different from just the addition of the parts. Now that kind of novelty or transformation, some people may want to call it emergence, but I haven't really got any particularly strong views on that. What really counts for me is that change is produced. Where that change is, is something more than just parts coming together to form new holes and then being disassembled to form other holes in a, in a kind of meriological way in which they don't undergo any transformation. To get to the conclusion then, so I'm saying that don't want the stimulus response model. It's, it suggests things that I think are metaphysically mistaken. Or, it's, or another way of putting it is it to go for the stimulus response model I think buys into a certain metaphysical picture it's not a purely neutral way of understanding powers and the way 
they get to act. And in particular, I think those who are serious about powers should be very wary of, of accepting the framework of the stimulus response. That's the first conclusion. Second, I think mutual manifestation is a superior model. But third, it would have to be understood in the right way which basically is the opposite of the way Charlie Martin is trying to get us to understand it. So I think the way he's understanding mutual manifestation is basically along the lines of mere logical composition of parts. And the alternative, which I would recommend instead, would be one that allowed transformation and the production of novelty and sounds a lot like exactly the thing Charlie Martin told us not to think of the causation so he says in that quotation don't think of the uh, mutual manifestation partners as causing the manifestation think of them as being the manifestation I'm saying no he's he's wrong on precisely that point it's uh, there is a process that's produced when the manifestation partners are together and we can say that the uh, the partners cause the manifestation. I think it makes sense to say that rather than that they're identical with the manifestation. Okay. Thank you, Stephen.